Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. On May 27, 1927, at just before 8 a.m., Charles Augustus Lindbergh gunned the engines of his plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, and sped off down the dirt runway of Roosevelt Field on Long Island. The plane was running heavy as it was loaded down with fuel, and it just barely managed to clear the telephone wires that ran along the field's edge as it became airborne. A crowd of 500 people stood by and cheered Lindbergh on as his plane grew smaller before vanishing over the horizon. Just 33 and one-half hours later, Lindbergh would go on to become the most famous man in the world when he did what was previously thought impossible, becoming the first man to fly the Atlantic solo. Lindbergh had been a male pilot just a year earlier, but when he heard about the $25,000 prize being offered for the first flight between New York and Paris, Lucky Lindy, as he'd come to be known, knew he had to take a shot. He gathered together a group of wealthy investors from St. Louis who bankrolled the construction of his special plane. Other people who had previously attempted the same crossing had met with disaster. But Lindbergh swore he would not suffer the same fate. Despite running through patches of bad weather along his journey, he managed to reach France just shy of three days later. It was a little before 10 p.m. when he saw the first glimmer of the City of Lights, and soon he was circling the Eiffel Tower at an altitude of about 4,000 feet. When he first caught a glimpse of La Bourget Field, where it was planned for him to land, he thought perhaps he was in the wrong place, since he'd been told the field was further away from Paris than it was. He circled back and realized he was in the right place after all. After his wheels touched down, a cheering crowd of more than 100,000 people were waiting for him. They surged past the restraining ropes and encircled his plane. The police had to hoist Lindbergh up on their shoulders to carry him over the cheering crowds. Lindbergh became not just an American hero, but a global one. It's not hyperbole to say that Charles Lindbergh instantly became the most famous man in the world. Everyone knew his name and wanted to be close to him. Back in the United States, he was adorned with medals and showered with adulations deserving of an American icon. The Daniel Guggenheim Fund sponsored him on a three-month nationwide tour, during which Lindbergh flew the Spirit of St. Louis over 49 states. He visited 92 cities, gave 147 speeches, and rode in nearly 1,300 miles worth of parades. He was seemingly tailor-made to be an American hero, tall, handsome, informal, even a bit shy. During a Goodwill tour, he met the beautiful young heiress, Anne Morrow, daughter of U.S. Ambassador Dwight Morrow. Lindy taught her to fly, 
and on May 27, 1929, they married in a private ceremony on her family's estate. It wouldn't be long before the celebrity couple had their first child, a baby boy they named Charles Jr. To the world, they were the perfect family, and little Charlie was the world's baby. But their picture-perfect life would be shattered less than two years later, when on a dark March night, someone kidnapped and murdered the 20-month-old. And although police would eventually arrest and convict a man for the crime, there are still those to this day who wonder if they got the right man. I'm Nate Hale, and the secret to flying is being able to throw yourself at the ground and miss. And this is The Conspirators. Every so often, you'll hear a case described as the crime of the century. In more recent years, that title would likely either be the murder of John JonBenet Ramsey or the O.J. Simpson trial. But back in 1932, that title would undoubtedly go to the Lindbergh kidnapping. Never before had a child that famous and adored ever been so horrifyingly victimized. It was a crime so brazen and terrifying to people that suddenly people who had never done so in their lives began locking their doors at night and refusing to allow their children to leave their sight. Because if the most famous baby in the world could be kidnapped, then it was believed any child could. On the evening of Tuesday, March 1st, 1932, a chill hung in the air, and a light mist drifted through the woods around the Lindbergh's isolated estate in Hopewell, New Jersey. Early in the evening, Ann put baby Charlie down to sleep in his second-floor bedroom. Sometime between 8 and 10 p.m., While the adults were all downstairs, some kidnappers crept up to the house carrying a homemade wooden ladder. They extended the ladder to the right of Charlie's bedroom, scraping the paint alongside the window. They entered the baby's bedroom through the unlocked window. It seems likely they silenced the child somehow, because no one else in the house ever reported hearing him cry out. The kidnappers left behind a ransom note on the windowsill demanding $50,000 for the baby's safe return warning the Lindberghs not to involve the police or there would be dire consequences. Police would later find the ladder the kidnappers had used lying alongside a service road the criminals had driven down to make their escape. They left behind no fingerprints nor any other real forensic evidence that could be used to locate them. Charles Lindbergh did allow the police to become involved in the investigation, but right from the very beginning, he made it clear that it would be him running the show. When news broke of the abduction, it shocked people around the world. At the time of the abduction in the Bronx, there lived a 72-year-old retired school teacher named Dr. John Francis Condon. Condon was deeply patriotic, and he thought it was his civic duty to write an open letter that was published in a Bronx newspaper, offering his services as an intermediary with the kidnappers. On March 9th, just a day after his letter was published, Dr. Condon received his own letter from the kidnappers accepting his offer. Remarkably, Charles Lindbergh also accepted Dr. Condon's assistance, and from then on, the retired doctor would find himself at the center of the negotiations. Condon, who became known by his nickname Jaffsy, after his initials JFC, would actually meet with the kidnapper on two separate occasions, once to ascertain the child's well-being, and the second to deliver the ransom money. Both these meetings took place at night in local cemeteries, 
When Jaffsey handed over the wooden box containing the ransom money, the kidnapper gave him a note purporting to tell the location of baby Charlie. Only the kidnappers lied, and the baby wasn't found. Not then, at least. Two weeks later, a local truck driver was walking in the woods when he stumbled across the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. just five miles away from the Hopewell estate. Judging by the state of decomposition, it appeared he had been killed the very same night as the kidnapping. The news sent shockwaves across the nation. It was as if everyone had just lost their favorite child. Cause of death was attributed to two fractures in the baby's skull. And although investigators at the time developed a theory based on some cracks found on the homemade ladder, that the kidnapper may have dropped the child on his way out the window, more modern forensic investigators have put forth another, even more gruesome theory. Some modern forensic experts have suggested that judging by the shape and position of each fracture, that the kidnapper may have struck the baby on one side of the head with a lead pipe or similar blunt object, the force of which was strong enough to create another fracture on the opposite side of the skull. Sadly, murder just makes more sense in this case. Stealing the child and keeping him alive for weeks would have been much more difficult and dangerous for the kidnapper than just killing him outright and making the parents believe he was still alive would have been. As the police investigation dragged on, it would eventually begin to grind to a standstill with no promising suspects and no new leads. Then, two and a half years later, things would heat up again when a man stopped for gas and bought 98 cents worth of fuel and paid for it with a $10 gold certificate. At the time, the gas station attendant had no cause to believe that this $10 bill could possibly have anything to do with the Lindbergh kidnapping. He was more concerned that the bank would refuse to take the note since the U.S. government had taken federal currency off the gold standard the year before. As a result, the man jotted down the license plate number of the person who had bought the gas on the edge of the bill. This would turn out to be the big break the police had been waiting for. One of the really smart things the police did during the kidnapping investigation had been to mark down all the serial numbers of the ransom money, and to use gold certificates, knowing that the currency would soon be going out of circulation, making it more recognizable once the kidnappers tried to spend it. The license number of the car belonged to a German immigrant carpenter living in the Bronx named Bruno Richard Haltman. When police raided his home, they found a substantial amount of evidence, including $14,000 of the ransom money, and a small handgun. They arrested him on the spot and charged him with the Lindbergh kidnapping. Thus would begin the biggest trial in American history up to that time. The trial began on January 3, 1935 in Flemington, New Jersey. Thousands of spectators and reporters swarmed the small town, all hoping to squeeze into the tiny courthouse. At the trial, Hopman professed his innocence but you need only look over his background to begin to see otherwise. Hauptmann, it turns out, had a lengthy criminal record back in Germany. He had been arrested for numerous crimes back in his hometown of Commons. This included an incident where he robbed the mayor's house by climbing a ladder into a second-story window. And there was another time when he and an accomplice robbed a mother pushing a baby carriage at gunpoint. In fact, the only reason Hauptmann was even in the United States at all was because he escaped from jail back in Germany that managed to stow away on a ship and lie his way through immigration. Despite his criminal background, Hauptmann managed to present himself well before the jury. But nothing he said or did could get around the evidence against him. Namely, the kidnapping money in his possession, and the latter that ultimately led to his conviction. 
The ladder the kidnappers used was constructed in three segments and could be collapsed down into a much smaller configuration, which would have made it much easier to carry to the scene of the crime. Police brought in a wood expert named Arthur Kaler, who examined every inch of the ladder and was able to definitively determine that rail 16 of the ladder was made from a piece of wood that had been cut from a floorboard in Hauptman's attic. After six weeks of testimony, on February 13, 1935, the jury found Bruno Richard Hauptman guilty of the kidnapping and murder, and he was sentenced to death. From the very beginning, prosecutors believed Hauptman couldn't possibly have perpetrated the crime on his own. Remember, they only found about one-third of the ransom money, which suggests there may have been two other accomplices with whom he split the cash. They offered Hauptman a deal where he wouldn't have to face the electric chair if he'd only give up the name of his accomplices. But Hauptman went to the chair professing his innocence. His wife Anna would go to her own grave in 1994 believing her husband was innocent. In the latter part of the 20th century, there have been some people who have questioned Hauptman's guilt. Keep in mind, none of Hauptman's fingerprints were ever found either at the scene of the crime or even on the ladder. One of the major pieces of evidence that was presented against him at trial was the telephone number of Dr. John Condon that was found scrawled inside Hauptman's closet. But later a reporter would admit that he had written the number there himself. There were also a few unreliable witnesses who came forward to testify they saw Hauptman near the Hopewell estate, including one who turned out to be legally blind. There were also allegations that police coerced some witnesses, doctored Hauptman's time cards, and ignored other evidence that would have provided him with an alibi at the time of the kidnapping. Even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover would later criticize how the police had conducted the investigation. Despite all this, at least in my mind, it doesn't seem like there's any doubt that Hauptman committed the crime. The fact that he was caught with the kidnapping money, along with the fact that one of the boards from his attic went into constructing the ladder, seems irrefutable. The real question, though, is whether he acted alone, or did he have accomplices in the crime? And that's where things get more complicated. The key witness who actually met with the kidnapper was Dr. John Condon, a.k.a. Jaffsey. Condon actually failed to pick Hauptman out of a police lineup as being the man he met in the cemetery. He initially claimed the man he met, who identified himself only as John, and would become known in the press as Cemetery John, was heavier and had different eyes and hair. But by the time the trial began, Jaffsey had changed his story and was now proclaiming on the witness stand that yes, indeed, Hauptman was the man he'd met in the cemetery. Which certainly brings his credibility into question. Some people have speculated that Jaffsey changed his story to ensure Hauptman got convicted no matter what. In recent years, a man named Bob Zorn has presented his own theory about the identity of the mysterious Cemetery John that may tie him to Hauptman after all. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Back in the summer of 1931, Bob Zorn's father, Gene, was a 15-year-old boy living in a German neighborhood in the South Bronx. Gene Zorn had a neighbor who lived a few doors down from him, a German immigrant and deli clerk named John Knoll. One day, Knoll invited Gene Zorn to accompany him to Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey, where they had the world's largest saltwater swimming pool. At the park, they met up with John Knoll's younger brother, Walter, and another German-speaking man whom they introduced as Bruno. While they were there, Gene Zorn recalled hearing the men discussing a wealthy neighborhood called Englewood, which, as it turns out, just so happens to be the location of Anne Morrow's family estate. Not only that, but that estate is where Anne and Charles Lindbergh actually lived during the week. At the time of the kidnapping, the Hopewell estate wasn't finished, and typically the couple only stayed there on the weekends. The Tuesday of the kidnapping was a rare exception. None of this, of course, meant anything to Gene Zorn at the time. It wouldn't be until decades later, in December 1963, when he was living in Dallas, Texas, and he went into a barbershop that he began to connect certain dots. When Gene sat down to wait, he began leafing through a copy of a magazine called True that contained an article about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Right away, there were certain things in the article that jumped out at him. There was the name Bruno Richard Hauptman, the name John, and the name Englewood, where the Lindberghs were living in 1931. The article's author declared without a doubt that Hauptman was guilty, but he did present the idea that the man may have had accomplices who were never caught. If there's one thing we can be certain of, it's that Dr. John Condon was a bit of a blowhard who got a thrill from becoming the center of attention in the investigation. And it seems likely that at certain times he changed his story to fit the circumstances and to keep his celebrity alive. But he also did give a description of the man called Cemetery John to a police sketch artist, and the resulting drawing does bear a striking resemblance to John Knoll. Gene Zorn, in his book on the Lindbergh kidnapping, also added some other tantalizing evidence. One particular detail Condon mentioned about the kidnapper was that he had a large lump or fleshy mass at the base of his thumb. A photo exists of John Knoll that shows both his hands and does appear to show his thumbs having some abnormality to them. Some other things Gene Zorn cites as evidence that John Knoll is Cemetery John is that not long after the kidnappers received the ransom money, John Knoll began spending a lot of money on things like luxury cruises and expensive stamps for his stamp collection. It's also known that he actually left the United States for a time and only returned seemingly right after Richard Hauptman was convicted of the crime. During the trial, the prosecutor brought forth handwriting experts who claimed that the ransom note and other letters were in fact written by Richard Hauptman. But the defense brought forth their own experts who said the handwriting wasn't a match after all. In recent years, modern handwriting analysts have come forward saying that the writing may not have been done by Hauptman. Although it's also believed, based on the way certain things are phrased, that the person who wrote the letters was likely a German immigrant. Gene Zorn believes that John Knoll probably met up with Hauptman after the two men began hanging around the same German Bronx neighborhood, and bonded after they found out they both came from the same hometown of Commons. But there is one major flaw in Gene Zorn's story about the man his father met as a teenager they called Bruno, 
Although Bruno Richard Hotman was his given name, he never went by the name Bruno, even back in Germany. He always went by Richard. The New Jersey police even have a school book of Hotman's from back in 8th grade in their possession, and it's signed Richard Hotman, not Bruno. There's yet another loose end with this crime that is yet to be fully explained, although some investigators who have looked at the case have come up with a couple of interesting theories, one of which is especially disturbing. One of the major problems with the crime is that, as I previously mentioned, Charles and Ann Lindbergh didn't usually stay in the Hopewell estate during the week. Which of course begs the question, how did the kidnapper or kidnappers know they'd be there that night? The reason Ann Lindbergh claimed they were there that night was because Charlie Jr. had a cold and she didn't want him to travel. Which then leads to the possibility that the kidnappers received inside information that the Lindberghs would be there. One possibility is that the kidnappers learned about the parents' whereabouts from a servant named Violet Sharp. Violet was questioned twice by the police and gave contradictory statements to them each time. But when they came to interrogate her a third time, she ran upstairs to her room and drank a bottle of silver polish that contained potassium cyanide. She was dead within minutes. Investigators tended to doubt that she was involved in the kidnapping and instead suggested rather that her suicide may have been because she was emotionally disturbed. Although it is possible that even if she wasn't directly connected to the kidnappers, she could have made an offhand remark to the wrong person who used the information to their advantage. The resulting guilt from knowing what she did could have driven her to take her own life. Other people who have studied the case have come up with one other potential person at the Hopewell estate that night who may have been directly involved in the kidnapping, although the implication is even more disturbing. That person is none other than Charles Lindbergh himself. In recent years, there's a theory that's been put forth that ties directly into some known facts about Lindbergh that paint the national hero in a much darker light. Lindbergh, you see, was a strong believer in a scientific field known as eugenics, which centered around the concept of human perfection, and in which it was believed you could actually breed your way into creating the ultimate human. Some people who have viewed films of and studied medical records of Charles Jr. believe the boy may have suffered from birth defects that Lindbergh couldn't abide with his belief in perfection. Researchers who believe in the theory that Lindbergh himself orchestrated his son's kidnapping point out that Charlie Jr.'s family doctor took note that the boy had an enlarged or still open fontanelle that should have been closed at his age, and that he had difficulty getting the boy to stand upright during the examination. Charlie's doctor described him as having a rickety condition, which some researchers interpret as a coy way of saying the boy had a form of this disease called rickets that comes from a variety of skeletal deformities. Ricketts is the result of a vitamin deficiency, and it is known that the Lindberghs were feeding their son vitamin supplements. So if Charlie Jr. really was suffering from Ricketts or some other birth defect, the question then is if that would be enough to drive his own father to do something as terrible as to have him kidnapped. Some of the researchers who believe that Charles Sr. was the mastermind behind the plot think that the original plan wasn't to murder the boy, but rather to spirit him away to an institution somewhere when things went tragically wrong. Remember, Charles Lindbergh insisted on being the one in charge of the search for his son, and that he used his celebrity to bully the police into doing what he said. The reason why no police were on the scene during the two occasions when Jaffsey met with the kidnappers was because Lindbergh insisted on it. It's also true that on the night of the kidnapping, the usually punctual Lindbergh left for a speaking engagement 
then unexpectedly returned home and told Anne he'd missed the appointment. If we are to believe that Lindbergh orchestrated the kidnapping, then he would have returned home that night in order to make sure that no one went up to check on the baby while the kidnappers were doing the deed. By 1936, the Lindberghs began receiving kidnap threats against their second child, and the family fled to Europe for three years. While he was in Europe, Charles Lindbergh's interest in eugenics would lead him to become embraced by another group that was also very interested in breeding an elite master race, the Nazis. By the time World War II was brewing, Lindbergh's hero status was becoming irrevocably tarnished. Lindbergh was known to spout anti-Semitic language even before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And after the bombing, he publicly took an isolationist stance against the United States entering the war. He once accepted a medal from Hermann Goering, and even suggested that the United States should negotiate a neutrality pact with Hitler. Although after the U.S. entered the war, officially Lindbergh denounced the demagoguery he saw in Adolf Hitler, he nonetheless continued making admiring statements about Germany, such as that, despite the crudeness of its form, the inevitable alternative to decline, a challenge based more on the drive to achieve success despite established right and law. In other words, although he wasn't particularly fond of Germany's methods during the war, he felt their heart was in the right place. Lindbergh publicly proclaimed that all parties were to blame during World War II. Judge not that ye be not judged. We who claimed that Germany was defiling humanity in his treatment of the Jew were doing the same thing in our treatment of the Jap, he said. Among members of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration, Lindbergh's isolationist views earned him the nicknames of Lone Eagle and Lone Ostrich. Roosevelt's Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, even suggested Lindbergh could use a heart transplant. After World War II, Lindbergh returned to Germany, and he became a consultant for Pan American Airlines and the Air Force. His creepy fascination with eugenics continued in full force. In 1966, Lindbergh wrote a letter to his daughter in which he tried to give her the fatherly advice that she carefully consider the importance of genetics in mating. But Lindbergh's fascination with breeding the ultimate human didn't just end with creepy rhetoric. No, as it turns out, the once world-renowned hero actually put his beliefs into practice. We may never know whether Charles Lindbergh had anything to do with his son's kidnapping, but in recent years, other dark secrets about the man have come to light. In 1958, Charles Lindbergh began using the identity of Carew Kent, and it's under this identity that Lindbergh fathered seven children with three different German women. He swore each of these families to secrecy up until the day he died in 1974. Then in 2003, some of these German children came forward, and through DNA testing, proved to the world that they were indeed the results of Charles Lindbergh's final secret. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that one way you can help support the show is by supporting us on Patreon. Patrons to the show get all sorts of rewards like t-shirts, magnets, stickers, and access to our bonus mini-episodes. I have a few new Patreon supporters to thank this week. Thank you to Larry, Shay, Rachel, and Molly. I really, really appreciate all that you've done for the show. Something else you can do to help support the show is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
I know all the podcasts say this, but it's for a good reason. Your reviews and ratings help boost us in the rankings and make us more visible to even more people. So, if you have a chance to spread the love about the conspirators, I'd be eternally grateful. If you're not on Apple, that's cool too. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, as well as your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.